14, and we will be reading from verse 53 till the end of the chapter. Context is that Jesus has just been arrested. After he and the disciples were in Gethsemane, Jesus was distraught, deeply distressed. Mark says his soul was overwhelmed with what he knew was going to come, and he asked his disciples to sort of keep watch with him as he prayed and struggled with what was to come. But the disciples fell asleep repeatedly. Then he was arrested, and now our passage of tonight, he is on trial. So Mark 14, verse 53 They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then, their testimony didn't agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, She said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time, and then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Jesus was brought before a hastily assembled Sanhedrin after his arrest. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews. The Romans had allowed the Jewish people some degree of self-rule as long as they stayed in line with general Roman expectations, as long as they paid their taxes, showed respect 
to the emperor. And part of this limited self-rule was that the Sanhedrin could have its own court cases, both on religious and civil matters. But the one limitation was that no matter how serious the case, they weren't allowed to impose capital punishment. That still remained a Roman prerogative. In those kind of trials, and like the ones we have nowadays, there were no prosecutors, there were no defense attorneys. Instead, there would be an accusing witness, someone who saw you do something and said, ah, I've seen so-and-so and he stole the money or whatever it was that you were accused of. So an accusing witness and the person being accused would mount his own defense and he or she could also call witnesses. Conviction was only possible with at least two witnesses agreeing on exactly what happened. Now the full Sanhedrin would be 70 members plus the high priest presiding, but they didn't need that many people to have a court case. The people you would find typically in the Sanhedrin, apart from the high priest, would be other priests, elders, sort of lay people from influential Jewish families, and scribes, the former being Sadducees, the scribes, many of whom would be Pharisees. So a very mixed group of people. Theologians, if you like, with different outlooks on theology, just like nowadays we don't tend to agree. And lay people, important people, lots of money, lots of influence. And for trials, they would meet in the daytime, and particularly not on the eve of religious festivals. So Jesus' trial obviously broke that rule. According to an interpretation of Deuteronomy that was sort of common in those days, a particularly serious offense could be leading to execution on a religious festival day, on a pilgrimage feast day, so that, as it says in Deuteronomy, all the people will hear and be afraid. Now, the times that Deuteronomy was written, obviously the Jews were all together, the people of Israel. Now, they were living all over the Roman Empire, not just in Israel. So, for all the people, or as many as possible, to hear, a festival day would be a particularly good day, because many people, many Jews, would travel to Jerusalem on those occasions. But only for serious cases would this be considered. And earlier in 14, chapter 14, verse 1, we read that now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or the people might riot. So, they were in a bit of a quandary as to when to carry these things out, not on the feast, but if they waited too long after the feast, then all the people would travel back to different parts of Palestine and even further afield. All those who had gathered together for Passover would go back. So there was some urgency if they wanted as many people as possible to be aware of this, to see it. 
so they needed to hurry up a little bit particularly since they would if they had found Jesus guilty they would also need to convince the Romans of this because like I said they, the Sanhedrin couldn't give a death penalty they would need Roman approval for that so that goes some way to explaining why this unusual or even illegal timing of the trial at night so Peter, uh, Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin and we read that Peter sort of follows from a distance and then waits outside in the courtyard with guests, with guards and other people present and this little sentence is just slotted in here and Mark will describe more fully what happened with Peter outside later but the idea is we need to be aware of those two things are consecutive what is happening to Jesus inside the high priest's house right before the Sanhedrin and what is happening to Peter outside in the courtyard is happening at the same time as Jesus is on trial Peter is outside being confronted with the fact hey aren't you one of them from the text it's pretty clear just like in 14.1 that we've just read that this wasn't meant to be a fair trial this wasn't a trial that was trying to objectively determine whether Jesus was guilty of anything no we're told they were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death that was the reason they were there they were quite clear on what the outcome should be and anything else really wasn't acceptable that was the reason why they were there they wanted him dead and there were plenty of witnesses or false witnesses if you like but no two agreed and as mentioned that's an issue they couldn't condemn anyone they couldn't find anyone guilty if there weren't at least two witnesses agreeing on it so so far they were falling short of what they needed to accomplish their goal then another so called witness speaks up and he says well we heard him say I will destroy this man made temple and in three days will build another one not made by man and we know from John that Jesus said something very similar but not those exact words and there was a significant difference he didn't say I will destroy the temple he said destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days and we of course from our perspective having read through all the gospels and know what is still to come we know that this referred to what was going to happen to Jesus not so much the physical temple in Jerusalem it refers to the destruction of his body and the rising of it again three days later his own people would accomplish that they would accomplish the destruction of his body if you want to put it like that and he himself and his heavenly father would accomplish the latter the rising again so this farcical show trial was actually working out God's purposes this was God's plan from the very start so they've got another statement on which they might catch him out on which they might try and 
convict him. But once again it says their testimony didn't agree. There were several people who supposedly had heard this, but their statements weren't the same. So it's not going well for the Sanhedrin. They're not sort of so far accomplishing their purpose. So the high priest himself steps up and now interrogates Jesus. And he asks, well, are you not going to answer? So far the witness side of things hadn't worked. They couldn't find two people saying something that they could convict Jesus on. So they needed him to say something that was a serious enough offense so that they could condemn him to death. (coughs) So the fact that so far Jesus was quiet wasn't a good thing from their perspective. Are you not going to answer? And remember, there were no defense attorneys who would speak out on account of the accused. The accused was meant to mount his own defense. And Jesus was there not saying a word. So you can't blame the high priest for wondering why isn't he saying anything? Why isn't he defending himself? Why is he not speaking up? But even after being challenged like this by the high priest, we read that Jesus remained silent. So they were in deadlock. Not enough witnesses agreeing to do anything. And no statements of Jesus himself on which they could catch him out to condemn him. So the high priest is in a difficult position. And then he focuses on that last testimony about the temple being destroyed and being raised again in three days. And he realizes that this has messianic overtones. Not because he realized that Jesus was talking about his own body dying and raising again. There was no way that he could have realized that. But the Jews also anticipated a renewal of glory of the temple when the Messiah would come. So talk about the disciple would have sort of picked up his ears and he would have realized maybe there is something there that I can use. Maybe there's something there where I can make Jesus say some more things and maybe then we can wrap this all up and kill him. So that prompts his next question. These messianic overtones prompt the question, are you the Messiah? And that was a crucial question, the question around which it would all hinge. If Jesus would answer yes, then according to Judaism, he would have to provide some proof of that. Quite substantial proof, because it's quite a substantial claim. And that would be utterly impossible in the situation that Jesus found himself in. The fact that he was under arrest, that he was on trial, he was accused, he was abandoned by his his disciples, he was helpless in the hands of his opponents. All those things made the notion that he could be the Messiah utterly ridiculous. Those things wouldn't happen when God's Messiah comes. Utterly, from their perspective, and totally ridiculous. So the trial is at a crucial, critical junction. If Jesus now answers in the affirmative, He would be condemned by his own words just by saying, yes, I am the Messiah, without any further need for witnesses. They wouldn't need any more witnesses to agree on anything. 
Jesus' own words would condemn him. And we realize that so far Jesus had avoided calling himself the Messiah in public. If you go back just a few chapters to Mark chapter 8, we'll read a few verses from 27 onwards. This is Peter's confession of Jesus being the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Christ, Messiah, Greek, Hebrew, meaning exactly the same thing, the anointed one of God. So, it was mentioned before, and it was revealed to Peter here, his disciples knew he was the Messiah, but they were told to keep it quiet. At that point, it wasn't the right time for this to become public knowledge. The time for his death hadn't yet come, then in chapter 8. Now it has come. So Jesus answers, I am. Yes, I am the Messiah. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Another obvious messianic claim. So yes, he says yes to the question, are you the Messiah? Then he refers there to Psalm 110.1 in the wording. And we've looked at that before in chapter 12. There also he refers to this very same psalm of David. David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, and I put your enemies under your feet. There we realize it was to make people think, Who is the Messiah really? Who can it be if he's a son of David on the one hand, and on the other hand David calls him Lord? The same kind of wording you can see here. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. Also a reference to Daniel 7.13. Both Messianic references. So now it's made abundantly clear. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Or from the court's point of view, yes, he is claiming to be the Messiah. So the high priest now has what he wants. He doesn't need anything more. So he tears his clothes to show what a horrific statement had just been made, to show how serious this was. This was obvious blasphemy. And there can be only one response. Jesus must be put to death. In Leviticus it says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. So Jesus had, and the conclusion therefore was obvious. And not surprisingly, when the high priest asks, everyone agrees, and Jesus is indeed condemned to death. He was then blindfolded, spit at, beaten, whilst being taunted to prophesy. Now that might seem a strange thing to do, to say, I'll prophesy. It's probably, or possibly at least, uh, due to a certain interpretation of Isaiah 11. So if you quickly 
want to go back to that, Isaiah 11, and we'll read from verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. This bit, second half of verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. The Judaism took that to mean that when the Messiah would come, he would know what was going on around him without any need for the normal human senses. So that's why after they've blindfolded him and hit him, they say, prophesy, tell us then, who is hitting you? They were taunting him. So all that remains now was to convince the Romans to go along with this charade and allow capital punishment. We'll read about that in chapter 15, so not tonight. But they, they use the slightly more political accusation. The Jews, uh, the Romans couldn't have cared less about someone blaspheming. So they didn't come with a religious charge, blasphemy. Instead, they focused on Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews. And that wouldn't sit well with Romans. They had their emperor and he needed to be respected and obeyed sometimes even worshipped so a king a claim of kingship put Jesus in opposition to the emperor so they focused on that once they took him before the Romans then the focus shifts to outside remember we had this, this one sentence about Peter in the beginning he had followed from a distance he was now outside in the court with the guards and other people there warming his hands at the fire. Now the focus is back there. It's kind of sandwiched the other passage so we realize this is going on at about the same time. Whilst he is there warming himself at the fire he is recognized by a servant girl who says you were also with that Nazarene Jesus, weren't you? And despite his earlier very confident assertion to Jesus that even if all fall away, I will not. Despite that, he denies it and he moves away from the fire to the entrance just to try to avoid these people, to avoid further scrutiny. And this wasn't just a casual denial, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. The formulation that he used, I do not know or understand what you're talking about, is actually an official, formal, legal refutation according to rabbinic law. So it's not just a casual denial that just slipped out. He formulated in a very strict way to make very clear, no, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Much stronger than just a casual denial. A second time then, the servant girl sort of follows him and says, he's one of them. And she's speaking to the crowd, she enfolds the crowd, so it's now not just this one girl he's confronted with, but she pulls other people in. And it's getting more and more 
awkward and difficult for Peter. And again, he denies it. And a little bit later, other people have picked up on these accusations flying around and say, well, you must be one of them, for you are a Galilean. Galileans had quite a distinctive accent, so they might have picked up on that when he was denying that he knew Jesus. And once again, Peter denies it, quite vehemently, using curses and swearing to these people, I don't know this man you are talking about. He can't even bring himself to say Jesus' name. And then the cock crows for a second time. And Peter remembers Jesus' words that he would disown him three times before the cock crows twice. And we read he broke down and wept. He was utterly devastated, disappointed in himself, absolutely shocked that he could betray Jesus. He was, in his own eyes, an utter and total failure. And probably, to make it worse, you would think that he would have remembered Jesus' words that we can read about in chapter 8, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus would be ashamed of him. He was so willing to stand up for his Lord. Even if all these other people go, I won't. But now Jesus would be ashamed of him because he didn't have this strength of character that he thought he did. Now just as a little aside, it's, it's interesting, I think, to think of why is this passage there? How did it make its way into Mark's Gospel? How did Mark know about it? How could he report it? And in fact, it's one of the reasons why a lot of commentators believe there was quite a close association between Peter and Mark. Because Peter obviously could have told him what was going on. Yes, there were other people there, the ones making the accusations. They could have told Mark, but they couldn't have told him about the relevance of the cock crowing twice. They couldn't have told him why Peter was breaking down, why it was such a big deal. It's pretty likely that Peter himself told Mark about his own denial, his own failure, or at the very least give him permission for it to be incorporated in the Gospel. So the failure of the most prominent early church leader isn't covered up, it's not glossed over, there's no spin doctor putting a positive spin on it, but it's spelled out for us to read about and take comfort and encouragement from. So in conclusion, Jesus' trial, Jesus' condemnation by the Sanhedrin would have in many people's eyes, made him an utter and total failure. In a sense, just like Peter felt when he heard the cock crow for a second time. His messianic claims in most people's eyes, certainly the Sanhedrin's eyes, were obviously ridiculous. It showed him just to be an awkward irritant who had thoughts way beyond his station. Who did this guy really think he was? 
Yes, he had caused plenty of embarrassing situations for the religious authorities with his teaching, with his miracles. But now he was shown just to be a blasphemer. There was nothing godly to him. To disciples like Peter, the event must have seemed inconceivable. All their hopes for the future, all their expectations were dashed. Yes, Jesus had said that it would happen, but they hadn't really believed him. They they thought, well, maybe Jesus gets the wrong end of the stick, or or maybe we don't quite understand what he's talking about, but surely he is not going to be killed. Now he said if someone would make a claim to be the Messiah, they would need to provide somebody like the Sanhedrin with very strong proof, which from the Sanhedrin's point of view was completely impossible. The very fact that he was there standing accused showed that he wasn't the Messiah. God wouldn't allow his Messiah to be in that kind of situation and he surely wouldn't have sent someone who would work against them. After all, they were placed in positions of authority, religious authority by God, weren't they? In fact, though, we've seen that the whole trial was working out God's purposes. It was in line with what Jesus knew his goal to be. So a casual observer would say, well, these people kind of crushed him, didn't they? Jesus knew this was exactly the road that he needed to travel, and he was doing it. That's why he said, yes, I am the Messiah. So even those who put themselves in opposition to God can't help but be part of his purposes. So no matter how bleak life's circumstances might seem to us, and I'm sure we've all gone through situations where it all seemed hopeless, and where maybe you were ready to just chuck it all in, and for Peter, this situation must have looked like that. We must know that God is in control. He's always in control, no matter how bad and hopeless it seems. Even if it seems there's no perspective, there's no way out, God knows the situation and God is working his purposes out. And that's the reason for the whole account of Peter's denial and failure being included here as well. He broke down and wept. And we can understand that. And maybe sometimes it's not that bad a thing to actually break down, to actually come to a point where you see your own limitations, where we utterly fail. We realize, well, maybe we're not equipped with the kind of strength that we have, with the kind of resources that we think we had. Maybe that's not such a bad thing to realize those kind of limitations. We get an accurate measure of our own weaknesses. And more importantly, we get a measure of God's grace and forgiveness. Because Jesus doesn't dump Peter. Both affirmations that Peter said, I will never deny you, I'm better than all these other people, that doesn't help, does it? It's easy to speak bold words when you're in a comfortable, safe situation. It's what happens when you're not, when you're under pressure, 
that will actually show you what you're made of. And quite often, we're shown not to be made of very sturdy material. And we break down. And that's okay. Because we realize we can't rely on ourselves. No matter what we say, that doesn't guarantee faithfulness. But failure doesn't lead to rejection either. For there is forgiveness. There is a fresh start, even after the most horrendous mistakes that we might make. The Sanhedrin would have required proof of Jesus' Messiahship. And the proof came, not when they wanted it. It came later in his resurrection. And it will come in his second coming. That's the evidence that yes, he is indeed the Messiah. Peter was overwhelmed with grief. He broke down. Not just his denial at Gethsemane. He kind of failed as well. Jesus was in despair. He asked Peter to stay awake with him. To maybe even join him in prayer. And it didn't happen. Peter fell asleep. The others fell asleep. There was just nothing there. So two failures. The denial obviously being the really bad one. But it wasn't the end of the story. Just like Jesus dying on a cross and his dead body being put in a tomb wasn't the end of the story. When the women later went and went to the tomb to anoint his body, they found the grave empty. And were told by an angel that Jesus had risen. And the angel said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter was specifically included. He wasn't cast aside because of his failure. He is specifically included. His Lord still loves him and still has a purpose for him. And of course we can read in much more detail at the end of John's Gospel how Jesus dealt with the situation. And just looking at Peter's role in Acts, we realize that indeed he wasn't cast aside at all. So God works out his purposes no matter how dire things seem, how devastatingly we think they might be going wrong. He worked out his purposes throughout the trial, which to everyone else was a sign that it had gone utterly and totally wrong for Jesus. No, this was God working out his purposes. Even through Peter's denial, he was working out his purposes. Peter broke down. He was devastated, but he was restored by his Lord who still loved him. When you and I fail, when we break down, when we realize we messed up and just couldn't do what needed to be done, didn't keep our promises, and it all goes utterly and totally wrong, it's not the end, for God will work out his purposes in your life, for your life, and through your life. Because the God we have is a faithful God. Shall we sing, Great is thy faithfulness.